Well, today, I, I thought we would, uh, you know, uh, of course, today would be great to continue our uh, teaching on Noah. Uh, we, we have uh, quite a, uh, an op- opportunity to experience it, right? And in some respects, we've come to learn over the last few weeks that the ark was a little more secure than 4950 Morris Road. Uh, but anyway, I, I, but I thought we would actually talk about Tisha B'Av, some of you may be saying, uh, what is that, right? And the three weeks of mourning, and some of you may be saying, what is that, right? And so that is a primary reason why we want to talk about it, so that we are aware of it. If we're part of a Messianic uh, Jewish community, this is something we need to be aware of. It's an important time of year. Uh, one thing that is really interesting is uh, how the cycle of... Uh, you have Torah and Haftorah readings, the, the Torah, the law of Moses, and the prophets throughout the year, how that works, uh, and also this cycle of uh, celebrations and observances in addition to the holidays that you read about in Leviticus chapter 23, okay? It's a very interesting. So the tradition is, is, that the, is that Jerusalem was breached by Nebuchadnezzar on the 17th day of Tammuz. Tammuz is a month, right? On the 17th day. That day is uh, commemorated by a fast. Uh, and uh, that a fast is a reminder to us of the destruction of the first temple and the second temple and a number of other uh, events, uh, other events as well. And it kicks off three weeks, three weeks of mourning, Mourning as in M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Uh, three weeks of, uh, of uh, generally speaking, a somberness, sadness. And uh, without going into all the detail, the traditions uh, uh, are basically the same, pretty much the same as when we're counting the Omer. You know how uh, you know, you're not supposed to have weddings, you're not supposed to cut your hair and you know, things of that nature and all that. So the three weeks of mourning are a remembrance of these historically uh, uh, um, bad times, okay? Now, they culminate, it culminates on the ninth of the next month, which is the month of Av, the month of Av. Uh, and so in Hebrew, the ninth of Av is Tisha B'Av, the ninth of Av. All right. Now that day uh, is the most uh, famous of those three weeks, uh, because usually conventional wisdom amongst us is that's the day that we remember the destruction of the first temple and the second temple and the golden calf and uh, not trusting uh, Moses to enter the land and a whole bunch of other things, uh, uh, but. Actually, it's the culmination of those three weeks on, on that day. So the 17th of Tammuz was on July 11th. And, the, uh, and Tisha B'Av is a week, I believe it's a week from Monday. I think it's a week from Monday. Not this Monday, but a week from Monday. And so the reason we're talking about it now is because, first, we're in the middle of it. And secondly... Uh, is that uh, uh, next week I will be away. And not only that, but it's our Camp Yaladim conclusion. 
not a good day to really talk about Tisha B'Av. Uh, so we're going to talk about it today and uh, try to understand a little bit about it, why it's important, and uh, what, it, what it means to us as a Messianic uh, Jewish um, uh, community. All right. So first of all, the, uh, there are five calamities that are remembered uh, during these three weeks slash Tisha B'Av. Okay? Uh, when uh, Moses broke the tablets, just that by itself. When Moses comes down the mountain and breaks the tablets, okay? Uh, the second is the golden calf itself. Uh, the, uh, the third one is when the daily sacrifices were discontinued, uh, which was before the actual destruction of the temple, okay? The breaching of the walls uh, of Jerusalem, uh, and of course the uh, destruction of the uh, the destruction of the of the temple, and actually it's the destruction of the two temples. Okay, and the tradition is is that they both uh, were destroyed on the ninth of Av. All right. So the, a question we might ask ourselves is why is why is this so important? Uh, why uh, why is there a day to remember this? Now, in recent history, we have Yom HaShoah. That's kind of a new phenomenon, right? Yom HaShoah. Uh, in fact, it's, you know, the, uh, the observance of Yom HaShoah is, relatively speaking, quite new. It doesn't go back to the end of World War II. It's, it's kind of a newer observance, remembering the Holocaust. So the Holocaust has sort of a, a place of its own, Okay. I, generally speaking, it is the ancient uh, horrific things that have taken place in Israel's history that we remember on, on Tisha B'Av, but that has also come to uh, remind us also of like the Spanish Inquisition and pogroms and, and uh, the long, long dark history of persecution uh, of the Jewish people. So the Holocaust has sort of has its own place, but... Uh, uh, of the three weeks uh, finishing up on Tisha B'Av is for the destruction of the temple and all of these other uh, persecutions. It's interesting because the uh, the temples play a most prominent place in uh, the uh, liturgy of Tisha B'Av, in the remembrance of Tisha B'Av, everything else almost pales in comparison to the issue of the destruction of the temples. So uh, in Jewish literature, there are many very interesting stories uh, and explanations uh, about this holiday and about the temples. So I'm not going to read this. There's a whole long uh, midrash, sort of a story about Elijah appearing to someone and so on. But I just want to read a little portion of the explanation. So Elijah, Elijah in Judaism, uh, is, he's almost like a messianic figure. And of course, from the end of the book of Malachi, there's good reason for that. He is a forerunner. We read he's a forerunner of the Messiah, right? Uh, and we read in the Brit Hadashad that John the Baptist, John the Immerser, Yochanan came in the spirit of Elijah, right? Okay. So Elijah comes and explains about why we're in exile and what exile means, okay? 
So for Israel, for the Jewish people, exile is being out of the land. That's what it's being out of the land, right? So when the temple, the first temple was destroyed, we went into exile. Uh, when the second temple was destroyed, we went into exile. Exile is not merely captivity and enslavement, because you are free to travel as you please. Elijah is answering a question from someone, okay? You are free to travel as you please, yet you are in exile. Nor is exile religious persecution, because you are free to pray where you wish. We cannot even say that exile means that we are not in our holy land, because you are right here in Jerusalem. Yet even here, God's heavenly voice continuously moans and aches over the exile. What then is the nature of the exile? So Elijah could have said that today, right? Where we, uh, there's Jerusalem, there's, uh, uh, we, we, especially in our uh, country, we can pray, we can, we're, uh, you know, uh, free to go wherever we want to go. So what's the nature of this exile? Why do Jews cry over it? What are we lacking? The answer is that we have everything except the Beit HaMikdash, the, the temple. We have been driven from our ancestral home, banished from the family residence. In spiritual terms, we are homeless. Homelessness is a terrible thing. It stands out in the lexicon of suffering and woe as a tragic term describing a pitiful person, lost and restless, rejected and neglected, insecure and unprotected, abandoned to the mercy of the, of the wild elements. Homelessness, taught Elijah, sums up the heartache of the exiled Jew. And he goes, uh, well, wandering to the four corners of the earth, the clever and capable Jew may settle down and prosper. He may strike new roots by erecting magnificent palaces and impressive houses. But the Jew in exile remains homeless because he has no temple. And so that uh, is a, a great little uh, statement that I think helps us to understand why Tisha B'Av is so important because uh, of this, the remembrance of the temple. Now the temple is remembered not only on Tisha B'Av, but it is so important to us that it's remembered all the time. There are all kinds of Jewish traditions by which we are to remember that we don't have a temple, right? And of course, probably the most famous outside of this holiday is the breaking of the glass at a wedding. The real reason for breaking the glass at a wedding, the real reason, is that in the midst of all of this joy, we remember that there is, and, and the love that a bride and groom have for each other, that we are reminded that there is a hole in our heart because we have no temple. Now, I don't know if you are aware of what's going on in Jerusalem today, as in today, I, but I, on the Temple Mount, I, there is all kinds of turmoil. This past week, if you're familiar, if you know, two uh, Israeli police were killed uh, on the mount, right? So if you're not familiar with it, when you go to Jerusalem and you go through, and you go through, the, uh, you know, through the metal detectors and all that and, you know, at the Western Wall, and it's a, this big plaza, right? And anybody can go there and pray and 
You know, it doesn't matter who you are, right? Anybody can go there and pray, right? So that, uh, that is a wall, on, and it is the actual western retaining wall of the uh, temple um, plaza, or of the uh, temple, uh, I don't want to use the word campus, but of the uh, temple area, okay? So in, Saul, in uh, Herod's day, right, uh, you had this uh, retaining wall built, and then on top of it was the temple, all right? Okay, so when you go to the Western Wall, it's not like this is the Western Wall, just like of the temple building, right? The second temple was on top. The first temple is below, okay? Or, yeah, pretty much below. All right, so on top, even though it's all part of Israel, you know, uh, since 1967, all part of Israel, right? There's an agreement that the top, the mount, would be uh, uh, controlled by uh, Muslims, okay? Still in Israel, and if you ever go up there on the mount, the first thing you do is you have to pass through a little Israeli checkpoint on, on top. It's like a little police, a uh, uh, little precinct, <laughs> you know, on top. And then you pass through there, and then you're in an area controlled by uh, the Muslims, okay? And you walk around and look at it and all that, all right? So uh, this past week, and it's a very obviously sensitive area. Do you remember perhaps in 2002 or three? I can't remember, when Ariel Sharon went up there? If you don't remember, that began what's called the Second Intifada. Okay, just his presence on the mountain just like, was incendiary. Okay, so ever since then, it's been pretty uneasy, you know, even, even to this day. So you had these policemen killed, and so what Israel did is they enhanced the security up there uh, with more of a presence of, of uh, Jewish of soldiers and uh, Jerusalem police and, uh, you know, in metal detectors. Well, then that resulted, you can just imagine, right? That resulted uh, in rioting and Palestinians were killed, right? And so now what the great fear is is that this is going to escalate, all right? Uh, and that things might happen in Gaza or the West Bank. So we don't know. But it is amazing, isn't it, that the issue of the temple, the issue of the temple mount, is still, to this day, uh, 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 the major issue for Israel, for the, for the Jewish people. And there isn't even a, we don't even have the temple there uh, uh, now, but, but the mount. And that is the location of, uh, of uh, when the Messiah returns. There'll be a temple in Jerusalem. That's the location of, uh, you know, of that uh, temple. And so it makes sense for us to talk about the, the, these three weeks of mourning and, and Tisha B'Av uh, in relationship, of course, as a, as a Messianic community, uh, uh, certainly, you know, what all of that uh, means uh, uh, to us. So when uh, Elijah, through the writings of our ancient teachers and rabbis, say that we're homeless, we may have Jerusalem, we may have uh, freedom to travel, 
we can build synagogues, but yet we're homeless, there is a recognition that the temple is the place where we recognize and experience the presence of God, right? That that is where the Shekhinah uh, dwells. And every day in the, uh, in the um, uh, Amidah, there is a prayer for the return of the Shekhinah, a prayer for the rebuilding of the temple every single day, three times, every single day, three times a day, religious Jewish people pray that the temple would be rebuilt and that the Shekhinah would return. And so certainly the temple is, uh, you know, uh, at the heart of, um, of, of the Jewish world for, for Jewish people. Now, when I read off the five uh, things here that happened, what's interesting is, is that there's a recognition that this is not just five things that the big bad enemies of the Jewish people did, and, and so uh, therefore, uh, you know, we, uh, uh, we've, we're, we're, we're an oppressed people, we're persecuted, uh, what are we going to do? There is a recognition, and all you have to do is read uh, anything that is read, any piece of liturgy, or the Book of Lamentations, which is read on Tisha B'Av, and you will see that what these three weeks are really about and what Tisha B'Av is about is a lament at our own sinfulness in causing the destruction of the first temple, of our own sinfulness in the destruction, in the, as the cause of the destruction of the second temple. Our own sinfulness as the cause of the entire exile. And not just looking at the, not looking at the enemies, but rather looking at the enemy within. Looking at ourselves. Uh, and, and so it, that's uh, also very important. Now, and that is described in a lot of ways. One thing about Judaism, if you're familiar with Midrash and rabbinic literature, or you know, or you've ever had a conversation with us, you know that there's never just one answer to a question that, that, it, that uh, it gets elaborated on. So when it comes to what is it that we did, why the temples were destroyed, in general, well, I'll just read, read here. Uh, the understanding is that the first temple was destroyed on Tisha B'Av because of three evils, idolatry, licentiousness, and bloodshed. But why was the second temple destroyed, seeing that during the time it stood, people occupied themselves with Torah, mitzvot, and tzedakah? In other words, just read the Brich read the New Covenant. People zealous for the law. You had the Pharisees who were, uh, and, the Sad, and, and the Sadducees, uh, and, and you had the Essenes, and, and you had people who, uh, the temple was not boarded up. You know, it wasn't like uh, uh, they, uh, they had neglected uh, the temple. Okay, what is the answer? Because during the time it stood, unrestrained hatred prevailed. Okay, this is usually understand, understood as Lashon Hara, saying bad things, speaking slanderous words, speaking words of hate to one another. So, because during the time it stood, unrestrained hatred prevailed. 
This is to teach you that unfettered hatred is deemed as grave as all of the three sins of idolatry, licentiousness and bloodshed, all put together. So hatred. Now, when you begin to uh, read this literature and unpack and peel back the, uh, the, um, what hatred is, just like you're peeling an onion, it's not just hating like, I don't like you, you know, that, that kind of thing. There's a particular kind of hatred. And this is amazing, as when I read this, you will understand. In the first few generations, when people still knew and understood the political situation that led up to the two disastrous revolts, many of the sages, especially Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who lived in Jerusalem and fled the city toward the end of the siege, referred more than once to the rigid, narrow-minded, idealistic zealotry that prevailed in that generation. Then he tells a story, of course. Then we'll skip the story, but after that we have here strict halakha and an uncompromising, narrow-minded, self-righteous idealism can easily lead to free-floating anger and hate, which unfettered and unrestrained led to this disaster. It is not surprising that Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai openly blamed the failure to judge people with understanding, flexibility, and loving tolerance as the cruel sin that led to the destruction of Jerusalem. Individuals who do not examine their own faults will repeat them. Societies and nations that do not examine the faults of previous generations are condemned to repeat them. That is why Jerusalem and its holy temple were destroyed twice and on the same day. Now that's very interesting because basically when Yeshua is challenging the establishment the uh, mostly the Pharisees. This is what he's challenging. We we uh, you know when you add all this up, it is a severe legalism that Yeshua was challenging. So that is very interesting. One of the things that it shows us is is that what Yeshua taught, what he what he taught about the Torah, uh, you know, ethical living and moral living, was not something that was so radical that it had never been heard of. He was very much like, the, like those who came to bring reform. The difference is he's the Messiah. The difference is, is who he is. The difference is, is that he is the incarnation of God and he's the Messiah and he died for our sins and he rose from the dead. But when you read the Sermon on the Mount, when you read uh, uh, you know, his other teachings, he came to bring uh, an understanding uh, and a corrective uh, to, uh, to the people. What I just read could have easily been, we could easily have been talking about Yeshua. See? Uh, and, uh, and so it's very interesting when we think about, uh, yes, we're lamenting the destruction of the temples and all the persecution. What we're really called to do during this three weeks and on Tisha B'Av is to look at ourselves corporately, as a community, as a people, uh, and individually, uh, and confess our sins and repent, uh, you know, and, uh, and recognize that God is not through with us or finished with us, but that he continues to indeed love us. Now, Yeshua uh, also spoke certainly very much uh, about the temple, right? 
in uh, 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 the Gospel of John in particular, right? In a couple of uh, places we can look at. One is in chapter 2, okay? After Yeshua cleanses the temple, it says in verse 18 of chapter 2 of John, The Jews therefore answered and said to him, What sign do you show us, seeing that you do these things? Like, who are you that you're cleansing the temple like this? Yeshua answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Okay. Uh, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Yeshua had spoken. All right. So there are a lot of things uh, in the uh, Torah that, that point to Yeshua. And so when Yeshua here is talking about the temple, he was really referring to himself. Now, there was confusion and misunderstanding, and it took the coming of the Spirit of God to make that clear. And by the way, in John, we read about a number of things that Yeshua said that people did not understand. It's very interesting, because it's in this very same Gospel of John, by the way, in chapter 7, where uh, Yeshua says, uh, in verse 37 on Sukkot, he said, Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Yeshua stood and cried out, saying, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from an innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Okay? But this, but then you see in verse 39, John uh, tells us something. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given, because Yeshua was not yet glorified. So here also, he says, now when this was said, people didn't understand it, but they did when the Spirit of God was poured out. Okay? So we want to remember this, uh, what we have on Sukkot here for just a second. But, and what we see here in John uh, chapter 2, about Yeshua referring to himself as a temple. Now in chapter 4 of John, beginning in verse 20, you have the uh, Samaritan woman, right? In verse 19, uh, we read, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And you people say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship, or people ought to worship. Yeshua said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem shall you worship the Father. You worship that which you do not know. We worship that which we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Then he says this, But an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such people the Father seeks to be his worshipers. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Then it's, I always find this a little humorous. Uh, this is one of the few places when you read it in English, you have to say just what it says, right? The woman, the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. Uh, and so in parentheses, so we know what Messiah means, right? He is, he is the one who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Yeshua said to her, I who speak to you am he. Wow, 
That's huge. Yeshua here is a clear place where Yeshua says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the one, okay? And in me, you worship in spirit and in truth. I am the temple. The day is coming and now is when worship takes place in relationship to Messiah Yeshua. And that is what Yeshua, may I suggest, was saying on Sukkot when he says, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Rivers of living water, we read in Ezekiel, flow out of uh, uh, the, the, the temple. Uh, and the Shekhinah, the presence of God via the, the Spirit of God, the Ruach, always lives, of course, he's everywhere, but in the temple. And we even read in the book of Ezekiel how the Shekhinah uh, uh, begins to leave uh, the temple before the temple uh, before the temple is uh, is destroyed, uh, and and so Yeshua is saying, even before the destruction of the temple in seventy A.D., before it happens, he's saying that real worship takes place uh, in me. Okay, and this is why when Yeshua is at the right hand of the Father in the second chapter of Acts, he pours out the ruach hakodesh. Because that is how we experience the presence of Yeshua in our lives. Technically, doctrinally speaking, the presence of the Spirit of God in our lives is how Yeshua relates to us. And so just as we read, you know, we read that the the Torah is in our inward parts. Yeshua is in our inward parts. The Spirit of God is in our inward parts. It's, as I said, I think recently, not so, it's crowded in there. You, you know, but all of that means that the very presence of God dwells within us and does so because of the finished work of Yeshua in taking our sins upon himself, dying for our sins and being raised uh, from the dead. That is why we can say we are raised from the dead in him. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon that uh, it, when uh, uh, the, uh, the Shekhinah left the temple, it was before the temple was destroyed. And so what's very interesting uh, is that in, in, in essence, the real exile, the exile from the presence of God, began before its physical manifestation in the destruction of the temple and of the people actually leaving the land. That's very important. That the actual exile begins before that. And then it's physical manifestation. Because in the return from exile, the return from exile begins long before its physical manifestation. That's what Yeshua meant when he says, Behold, uh, an hour is coming and now is. It is in the sense of the presence of God in our midst, but when it comes to its physical manifestation, and that is the appearance of Yeshua in the flesh again, uh, coming and ruling from Jerusalem and then the nations coming to Jerusalem and learning from Yeshua and the wolf laying down with the lamb and, and nations uh, turning their um, war equipment into farming machinery, all that, 
No, we haven't seen the physical manifestation of it yet, but yet the, the, spirit, the, the invisible part of it, I don't like to say spiritual because everything is spiritual, but the invisible part has begun to happen with the coming of the Messiah. And so that's why, for example, when we say that we relate to Yeshua's resurrection, look, I'm still, you know, like all of us, we're still flesh and blood, our bodies are decaying, we get all kinds of issues in our lives, in our world, yet we have the audacity or the gall to say, I'm living a resurrection life, not because of my body, that's coming, that hasn't happened yet. But because of my identity in Messiah Yeshua, by receiving him into my life, the, the beginning of that reclamation has begun. We are no longer in a spiritual exile from the presence of God when we know Messiah Yeshua. And that's what, we, that's what it means when we, he's the temple. He is the presence of God. When we identify with Yeshua, he is King Messiah, the presence of God. And that is why I would suggest in our uh, Besorah reading, in our New Covenant reading today, isn't it interesting that we read about Yeshua, this great uh, paradox, uh, in his humiliation being called King of the Jews. Isn't that great? He yes, because he is King of the Jews. He is the Messianic King. And that is why we may be wringing our hands over presidents and prime ministers. We may be all concerned about North Korea, and we may be very, and rightly so. I mean, the world is, in a, is a mess. But recognize that the redemption has begun. It's like a done deal, but it has not yet all happened yet. All the more reason for us to, on be lamenting the sorry situation that is in the world because of our sin. But on the other hand, have great hope and rejoice in what the coming of the Messiah means. We are called the temple, right? In a variety of places, in the writings of Paul, believers are called the temple. And what's really interesting about that is, generally speaking, it's not about, it's not like we are a hundred temples here. Okay? Uh, that's important. I mean, we can make that application to our own life. My body is a temple. I need to take care of it. Yes. But when Paul is writing, uh, I, could, I stand to be corrected here, but generally speaking, the you in the you are a temple uh, is the second person plural. Maybe. Right? Yeah. Uh, in other words, you. Right? Uh, not they and not me, but you. As a community, he's writing to communities. So when he talks to the Ephesians and he's talking to the Corinthians, he says, you. Boy, when he's talking to the Corinthians and he says that, they needed to really be cleansed. That temple, that is a temple. He even calls them holy ones at the beginning of the letter. And then he challenges them in, in, in just in their ungodliness. But yet they are a temple. They are a temple of God because they are Messiah followers who have fallen on uh, immoral times, see? And so when, when we read there, you are a temple in chapter 6, uh, you know, he's, he's speaking to the congregation. And by application, 
uh, you know, to, uh, uh, to us all. You read in verse 18, flee immorality, and this is chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, flee immorality, every other sin that a man uh, commits is outside the body, but immor- the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. We are the temple, and by extension individually as well, because we know that we're indwelt with the Spirit of God. And so it's a, it's a fine application, but let us not forget that he's talking to a community, not just a whole bunch of individuals, but a community, and that we need to be concerned about that kind of cleansing. We need to be concerned about immorality. Uh, as the rabbis say, idolatry, uh, licentiousness, you know, and, uh, 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 and all forms of, of sinfulness, of hatred, of legalism, of all those things. Isn't it amazing that in the Midrash you have all these things that uh, really uh, can be defined as the deeds of the flesh that you read about in the fifth chapter of the book of Galatians. Very interesting how the rabbis describe what brought us to this condition uh, and in a way, when you look at uh, that passage in uh, Galatians chapter 5 about the deeds of the flesh, it describes that condition. Interesting. And so we have this calling upon ourselves. Another place is in uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Okay. Uh, we read uh, here about uh, uh, Jews and Gentiles and the body of Messiah in verse 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. Having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Messiah Yeshua himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, whom in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Uh, and so as, a, as Messiah followers, the community of Messiah followers is indeed a temple. We have a responsibility as Messiah followers to being a cleansed temple, to demonstrating to this world full of corruption, wow, this is the part of what's coming that now is. We need to demonstrate that. We need to let the world know, especially when we think about uh, these days of Tisha B'Av, uh, and we see what's going on, as I said, on the Temple Mount uh, today, because there's really only one answer to the whole thing, right? The one answer is Yeshua, not reforming sinfulness, but the answer is in uh, Messiah Yeshua. Another thing uh, that we see here, and just in, in uh, finishing up, and uh, is this that uh, the um, this was not uh, missed by uh, by the prophets. You know, the um, Jeremiah himself lamented certainly uh, over the destruction of uh, of Jerusalem. Right. Just to save some time, I guess uh, I'll just read the, the very end of the Book of Lamentations. Very end of Lamentations. Thou, O Lord, dost rule forever. Thy throne is from generation to generations. Why dost thou forget us forever? Why dost thou forsake us 
so long. Restore us to Thee, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old, unless Thou hast utterly rejected us and art exceedingly angry with us. And so there is a cry. Lamentations is a cry. It's a cry of, Lord, restore us. You indeed do rule forever, even if we don't see you. You rule forever. And to me, that's, very, that's amazing. Jeremiah is saying, your being king is not dependent on what's happening on the ground. You're the king forever. And so, based on that, do not forget us. And there's the angst of Jeremiah. Why have you forgotten us? Don't forget us. Restore us. Are we lost? Are we not lost? What, you know, and, and that is the angst of the prophet, the pathos of, of the prophet, right? But see, Yeshua, in Matthew chapter 23, says this at the end of the chapter. And it really describes, when you think about it carefully, the pathos of God, the, the sadness of God in, in Yeshua's day, the impending destruction of the temple the impending destruction of Jerusalem, years of persecution and sadness and grief, and Yeshua even recognizing that he himself, to this very day, 21 centuries later, is still persona non grata in the Jewish community. He says these words of great sadness. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were unwilling. See the desire of God? The desire of God for redemption, the desire of God to save them, the desire of God for protection of the people. That's his desire. But you were unwilling, he says. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on, you shall not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so we still await that day. But yet, he has come, the future has come, and we look forward to it. We could say, just as, as Yeshua said, the day is coming, but now is. And that is what we experience as Messiah followers. That is what we try to demonstrate in our own lives. That's what it means when we say that we experience Israel's future today. That's what it means. And so on Tisha B'Av, on these three, three weeks of mourning, let us recognize, yes, that we need to be a cleansed vessel. We need to be lamenting our sins and be confessing and, and so on. Because you know what happens after Tisha B'Av? After Tisha B'Av, you have six weeks of leading up to Rosh Hashanah. And they're called weeks of consolation, where passages from Isaiah 40 to 66 are read uh, as the Haftorah. In other words, looking forward to the restoration, you know what I mean? Uh, but this becomes like the low point where, we, uh, where we're called to be cleansed. But it's so important for us as a Messianic community to see that, that you see, we see the coming of the Messiah. We see our history as part of Jewish history, not apart from Jewish history, this is not like their history. This is our history. Our history is one of lamentations. Our history is one of, the, is one of rebellion. 
Yet God in his mercy has seen fit to send the Messiah. And on top of it, he has allowed people like you and me to embrace him ahead of time. But now is. The day is coming, yes, when all Israel shall be saved and, and uh, you know, there'll be the, the, uh, a new heaven and a new earth and Yeshua is sitting in a temple in Jerusalem. But now is in an invisible way as we look forward to that physical manifestation. And so let us be motivated to share this message. In days of anguish, let us share words of hope in the coming of Messiah Yeshua. And so let us pray. Lord God, we thank you that the day is indeed coming, Lord, when you will gather all of Israel from the four corners of the earth and restore our people to Eretz Yisrael in peace and tranquility, where you will rule, where you will reign, where there will be great rejoicing, where there will be no more wars, no more sadness, no more pain, none of it. Lord, we look forward to that great feast in that day, Lord. But Lord, we thank you that today we can... We can experience your presence. We can live in your presence with all of the assurance and joy and peace uh, and long-suffering and self-control and all kinds of things like that that go along with that, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that our hope is not built on politics or world leaders or progress or technology. But, Lord, our hope is indeed in you. And thank you that the Messiah has come and we have, as it were, the, the down payment, the Ruach HaKodesh, the, your presence in our midst and in our hearts, Lord. Lord, may the world see it, desire it, and be saved and know you. We pray in Messiah's name.